Second part of our chapter 10, probably about what, the fourth, fifth part in a series of food sacrifice to idols. Um, The title of the message is Discerning Between the Majors and the Minors, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians 10, we'll start at verse 14 and take it through the end of the chapter 33, and a very timely message for what we're experiencing um, in our country right now. So, discerning between the majors and the minors. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and bless this time that we have together, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you for just uh, the love letter that we have in front of us, and Lord, how we can dive into it. We can learn so much as it relates to life and godliness. And so I pray, Father, that you would speak to us and uh, give us guidance, direction. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn to discern, Lord, between the major things in life that we need to be all about, the things you care about, the things that you are intent about. So bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So since chapter 8, we've been talking about things sacrificed to idols. There were these idol temples. There were these individuals that were coming out of idolatry in the city of Corinth. If we were to take the city of Corinth, we could say it's kind of a combination of three of our cities, New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, and just think about what those three cities represent, and that would be the city of Corinth. A lot of commerce, a lot of debauchery, a lot of idolatry, a lot of paganism, a lot of uh, just things that were taking place, a lot of sexual sin. And um, if you were called a, a Corinth or you were a Corinthian, it was, it was like a cuss word. It was like you were like a messed up uh, person because you lived in such a, a lifestyle of sin. And so Paul is writing into this church, into this community. He would spend a year and a half with them. Uh, one-on-one, sharing the gospel with them, watching them come to the Lord, discipling them, teaching them in the church. And so as we hit this section, we're in the second part of the book. The first part were some concerns that Chloe's household had brought to Paul, and he addressed all of those things. And now he's in the second part where he says, the things that you wrote to me about, and that's what he's talking about. He started with marriage and divorce in chapter 7. And then he went on to some other things. And now here we are in chapter 8, and we're looking, or chapter 8, 9, and 10, the second part of that second part. And he's talking about, again, things sacrificed to idol. And as I, as I studied this and I looked at this, I was thinking, well, I don't know very many Christians today that are struggling with things sacrificed to idols. And, you know, the world might do what it does, and, you know, we'll let them do what they do, but... How does this affect us or how does this relate to us? And so as we wrap this up today, you're going to see exactly how this relates to us. And again, just the, the, the priority of being very, very careful because Satan is subtle. And if he can't get you to backslide, he'll get you to front slide. Yeah. Um, front, backsliding is obvious. You know, we go into sin, we start committing sin, we start doing things that we have no business doing. But front sliding is thinking that you're holier than thou. Front sliding is taking on the attribute or the characteristic of a Pharisee or a Sadducee, of thinking that you don't need God as much as somebody else. Guess what? We all need God. We, we need to be desperate for God. We need to seek the Lord, the Bible says, while he may be found. 
And so it's very important that we recognize that. So, in chapter 8, when he introduced this topic of things sacrificed to idol, he said an idol is nothing. Think about what that means. From the context of an individual that goes to a forest with all these trees, and you chop down this tree with an axe, then out of that tree maybe you take some of the lumber, the wood, and you make yourself a piece of furniture. And from that same tree, you cut yourself some pieces and you can put it in your fireplace and you can warm yourself through that same wood that comes from that tree. Or you can put it in the stove and it can heat up your food and provide these good things. And then let's say you have a little bit left over and you take this knife and you start carving out an idol. And you place it on a throne or a pedestal. You, you place it up and you begin to bow down to it. In that sense, he means an idol is Nothing. What is an idol? It's, it's a tree that was taken down from the forest and somebody whittled it out and it really is nothing. But today he's going to tell us that an idol is something very, very subtly um, damaging. And so we're going to see the contrast in that. As we go into then chapter 9, Paul begins to show them that he was willing to give up his rights. He had the right to be fed by the gospel. But what did he do? Instead, he chose to work outside, and he was a tent maker by trade, and he would earn his living outside so as not to be a stumbling block to anybody. And so what he was saying in chapter 9 was, I'm going to give up my rights. I have the right to earn money through the gospel, but I'm going to give up my right. And then he would tell us at the end of the chapter why, because I want to be all things to all people that I might win some. And so you see his heart In this whole context of what we're looking at, last week we covered chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and he talked about, he showed us the nation of Israel and how privileged they were. These wonderful, incredible miracles and blessings that God had given to them. And yet, what did they do? They strayed. They went away from the path of the Lord. They didn't seek the Lord wholeheartedly. And so the warning for us is we need to be careful that we don't think just because we're saved, just because we know Jesus, just because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that Satan won't get us, that Satan won't tempt us to do things that we have no business doing in the culture that we live in. And so that there would be a dependence upon God, so that there would be a reliance upon God, a trust in God for everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we say. And so he did that, and then we ended that chap, that section with uh, no temptation has overtaken you as such is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will make a way of escape, and how God is not going to ruin his re- reputation on us. God is there to show us the path, to show us the way, and oftentimes the way out of the trial is the way through the trial, unfortunately, right? But what do we learn in the midst of trials? We learn again, dependence upon God, trust in God. We're crying out to God. We're calling out to God. We're praying to God. We're seeking God in the midst of those trials, amen? And so we are praying, God, take this trial away. And God's like, why should I? You're seeking me. You're looking to me. You're praying to me. This is actually good. This is good for us. And so he removes us when it's time, when it's necessary. But for the most part, God is able to do far greater in the midst of our pain than he is when things are comfortable and convenient. So that brings us up to this chapter. The first thing he says then, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Starting at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Um, In the original Greek, the word idolatry has the in front of it. So he's not just saying flee from idolatry, idolatry. He's saying flee from the idolatry. The idolatry that existed in the temple, in the pagan temples of these individuals that were eating meat sacrificed to idols. So it's more than just idolatry. And idolatry is bad, but he's saying the idolatry, specifically, be careful what you're doing with your time, who you're mixing it up with, where you're at when you're doing this thing, these things. An idol is nothing, he said in chapter 8, verse 4. But yet we are to flee from the idolatry that these people were involved with. A lot of these people were non-believers. They were not Christians. And they would be in these temples worshiping their idols and then there would be feasts after this. And he's saying, be careful with that. Flee from it. Don't have any part of it. And you think about idolatry. Idolatry is anything that is, is, is on the throne of our hearts. So our heart is the center of our being. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, guard your heart for out of it, what? Flow the issues of life. Guard your heart. Be careful what you put on your heart. Be careful what you're elevating in your life. Flee from idolatry, the idolatry. What's wrong with idolatry? What's wrong with idolatry is it will never do what it promises to do. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And so out of God's love, he's saying, it's not what you're longing for. This idol that has been set up. What can be an idol in our hearts today? A relationship, ministry, a person, a child, a car, something material can be an idol. Anything that we remove God from our heart and we um, place it in, in God's place. I think of winning arguments sometimes for people. I don't know if you've ever been here. This is kind of just, again, this is my warped humanity here. Um, I'll be in the midst of an argument with somebody, and I mean an argument, like heated argument, you know, like just, let's do this. And you're winning the argument, and God gets my attention, taps on my shoulder. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Lord, I'm about to get this. Lord, I'm about to nail him. I'm about to like handle this. And I'm winning the battle, but the Lord's like, you're going to lose the war. You're going to lose the war. You're going to win the battle. You're going to win this argument. You're persuasive. Your words are flowing. You're coming out. Whoo, it's polished, but you're going to lose the war. You're going to lose the opportunity to be a voice in their life. Stop. And the Lord will convict me. Now, where's the idol in this case? Lord, I can't. I, I can't. I got, I got it. Like, if I win this one, this will be like, I'll be good for 30 days. I know it. I know it. I'll be good. And like, and those are idols that we resurrect in our lives. We'd rather win than obey God, than let God lead us then let God be the one that is saying, son, daughter, stop. Stop, right? And so an idol can be anything. An idol, you know, they come and they go. Obviously, we don't want gigantic idols where that's what we bow down and worship all the time, but recognize idolatry is a very subtle temptation in our life. He goes on in verses 15 through 22. I speak as to wise men, Judge for yourselves what I say. Why would he appeal to their wisdom? In chapter 8, as he introduced this topic, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, it edifies. And so you guys have this knowledge that an idol is nothing, but you're stumbling your brother, your weaker brothers and sisters with it. 
So you have this knowledge and it's puffing your head up and you're boasting about it. All the while, you're just running over your weaker brothers and sisters with this idol. So now he comes and he appeals to their wisdom. And he says, I speak to, uh, as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice, sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so what he's saying in this section is, I want you to think about communion and what communion is. They believed in first century AD that if you partake, partook of a meal with somebody, you were becoming one with them because that which you were ingesting was from the same loaf as somebody else. And so that one piece of bread was being ingested by you and another, and mystically, somehow you two were becoming one in this fellowship or communion. And then he points to the nation of Israel and the sacrifices that they had. That sacrifice was offered for more than one person, and again, they were having communion. They were coming together in that sacrifice. And so he turns that around and he says, Do you know what these people are sacrificing to these idols? They're conjuring up demonic spirits when they do this stuff. They're becoming one with this demonic realm. You shouldn't do that. The word partakers is the same word koinonia for communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16 and fellowship in 1 Corinthians 10.20. Koinonia is fellowship. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that the early church had four things that made them a dynamic church. They broke bread, they prayed, they read the word, and they had fellowship, koinonia. Unfortunately, koinonia, fellowship, has lost its meaning to the church in these last days. And somehow I think we've come to think that, you know, fellowship is hanging outside before service for like seven minutes and, you know, taking a... a, a, cup of coffee and drink eating a donut and somehow we think uh, yeah we're fellowshipping man dude i got the jelly filled and she got the sprinkles it was so good dude fellowship was deep and i think you know that could be fellowship i mean we could you know start talking about the lord and the things of of the lord i read a 10 to 12 page article this morning on fellowship powerful powerful Bottom line behind fellowship in this article, the guy was saying, the key was they did this steadfastly. It was something that was a priority for them. They were in the word, they prayed, they had communion, but they also fellowshiped steadfastly. And then the other thing that he said was over and over in the Bible, it says one for another, one for another, one for another. What is your perspective? What is your attitude toward the body of Christ? Are you connected? Are, is your life intertwined with anyone inside of the Bible, inside of the the church, outside of your home. Think about that. Do you hurt for the brothers and sisters that hurt in your fellowship? Are you mindful of the things that they're going through? 
the pain that they're in, the struggles that they have, do you think of them more than just when you meet together? No, okay, out of sight, out of mind. Now I'm reminded of you. And that's fellowship, to have things in common for sure. We have the Lord in common. We are saved. We're going to heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have that in common. Woo, right? Does that mean anything to you? Do you care that there's brothers and sisters in the church that are hurting, that have issues? Do you rejoice when they rejoice? Somebody gets a promotion. Something happens good. Can you, can you rejoice with that? And that's the fellowship that we should have one with another. It's not this acquaintance thing. And I know that ministry is sloppy. And I know that ministry hurts. And I know that ministry is self-sacrificing. I know. I know. I've been there. But nonetheless, that's what God meant when he said that he wants us to be in fellowship, one with another, that we can reach out to one another, that we can be strengthened by one another, that we can be held accountable by one another. That's fellowship, and that's what it was supposed to be. He goes on, he says, What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? They sacrifice to demons. Paul has already acknowledged an idol is nothing in the world. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, as I mentioned. Is he now saying idols are actually demons? No. But he is saying demonic spirits take advantage of idol worship to deceive and enslave people. Without knowing it, idol worshipers are glorifying demons in their sacrifice. The Bible says the natural man does not discern the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned. Neither can he know them. And so I would imagine some people that are worshiping demons know what they're doing, but for the most part, do they know the depth of what they're doing? Do they, know, do they know that the enemy wants to destroy them? No. I have family members that were practicing witches. In Spanish, it's called brujería. I watched the effects of that. I lived with the effects of that. Do they know what they're doing on some level? You could say, ah, oh, they kind of know. It's, it's, it's hokey. It's, it's white magic, black magic, whatever you want to call it. Do they know the depth of what Satan wants to do? No. No way. He wants to destroy. Rob, kill, and destroy. When it says to provoke the Lord to jealousy, it doesn't matter that the Corinthian Christians didn't intend to worship demons at these heathen feasts in pagan temples. If a man puts his hand into the fire, he places it over the fire, even though he doesn't intend to be burned, will he be burned? Absolutely. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? No. And so playing with fire, we need to be very careful. On The fact that God is jealous is an interesting attribute of God. If a man dates a woman and they get serious about their relationship, what will happen if he takes up the same kind of relationship with another woman? What will the first woman think? Why can't the man say, well, I still give you attention, don't I? Ooh, no, that's not going to work. Most of the time, hopefully, that's not going to work, right? And so how much more in this relationship that we have with God? Yeah, yeah, I know, God, you got me. You got me. I'm going to heaven. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. Woo, this is awesome. But I like these demonic things, too. God's like, nah, I'm exclusive. It's me or nothing. It's all or nothing. It's in or out. He's a jealous God. And the jealousy of God is an interesting attribute. He's more jealous for you than he is of you. God doesn't need you, newsflash. God is self-sufficient. There is nothing that he needs. 
He's jealous for you, knowing that He's the only one that can truly satisfy you, the only one that can truly enrich your life, the only one that can truly give you what you need. He's jealous for you. He sees you going after, straying after things, and He says, son, daughter, that is not going to fulfill you. I am jealous for you, but I'll be here when you want to come back. That's our God. He closes that section by saying, are we stronger than he? The Corinthian Christians claimed the right to eat pagan temples because they were such strong Christians. But are they stronger than God? (laughs) None of us are. And so we need to be very careful. And again, starting this chapter, he used the nation of Israel and their history to show us as Christians just because you got communion, just because you have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, don't think that you're stronger than God. Rely on God, depend on God, trust in God. He goes on in verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, I, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And so what they were doing is they were self-centered in this approach to what was taking place. They were seeking their own. They weren't concerned about others. The Corinthian Christians were asking one question, what's the harm to me? They did not consider how their actions were harming others. And Paul said in chapter 9, I became all things to all men that I might by all means win some. I'm others-centered, others-focused. I'm interested in seeing others come to Christ. Verses 25 through 30, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And so here's the contrast that he's saying. Be careful with the idolatry. Be careful with going to the temple where they're worshiping and bowing down to these idols and making sacrifices to these idols and this meat that was sacrificed to idols, then they serve for you to eat and there's a communion there, there's a fellowship there, you're becoming one with that, don't have anything to do with that. But if a non-believer invites you out and says, hey, you want to eat? Don't ask any questions. Whatever they set in front of you, give thanks for it and eat it without asking questions. But if they tell you this meat was sacrificed to idols, then you say, nah, I want nothing to do with this. I want it because of you, because you no, know, you know that that idol is nothing. And you see that filet mignon, you see that ribeye, you see that top sirloin or whatever, you know, steak you like, right? And you're like, mm, this looks bomb, right? Carne asada, right? You see it. And he's saying, no, for their conscience sake, for their weakness, forego your right to be able to minister to them, even if they're offering it to you. He closes with 31 through 33. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, 
just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And so ultimately he says, do all to the glory of God. That's the purpose of our life, that we would glorify God in our actions. Give no an offense, no offense. An offense is an occasion to stumble, of leading someone else into sin. Paul is saying none of our behavior should encourage another to sin. And then he closes with that they may be saved. More often than we think, low conduct in Christian living is connected to little regard for the loss. Paul's concern was not seeking his own profit, but that all may be saved. And so you look at this idea, this concept. We know that an idol is nothing, but yet, hey, these people are sacrificing to um, false gods, to these idols, and there's a communion, a fellowship with that. And so he's kind of taking us away from that, but at the same time he's saying we know that an idol is nothing. And so as I was studying this, as I was looking at it, how do we apply this? And I say discerning between the majors and the minors is something that we need to be very careful of because Satan is subtle in what he does. And he loves to get a sidetrack into arguments and into issues and into things that aren't the main thing. And before you know it, we've closed off people's ears because we're talking to them about things. We're winning these battles and we're losing the war. So we need to be very, very careful. Let me show you a commercial that um, uh, something that I, I was able to pull up. Benjamin, pull up the Monster Energy Drink uh, ad for me. I just check this out, and then we'll talk about it real quick. M closely. There's a gap right here in the letter M. It's never connected. So you go into Hebrew. The letter Vav is also the number six. Short top, long tail. Short top, long tail. You could have here in Hebrew, 666 on the can. But my interest is the word monster. What do you see in the O? There's a cross. Okay. What has Christ got to do with an energy drink, let alone the name monster? So I thought, well, maybe this is a Christian company then. BFC at the bottom of the can. Do you know what that stands for? That's the F word. Big can. In fact, they write it on the side of the can, so I know that's the F word. Okay. Now, do you know what a MILF is? Yes. That's on the box. MILFs, dig it, and you will too. This is not a Christian company at all. So why would they have put a cross on the can? Here is the message. Antichrist. 666 in Hebrew. And then the Bible talks about the beast in Revelation. And look at Monster's ad. This is their statement. You see these M's everywhere. Hats, t-shirts, bumper stickers. Is there another agenda here? If God can use people in product, so can Satan. And look at it this way. Even if the M was not the issue, you cannot deny that that is a cross. And what is witchcraft? When the cross goes upside down. Bottoms up. And the devil laughs. Something to think about. Wow. This is how clever Satan is and how he gets into the Christian home and a Christian's life. And it breaks God's heart. 
Jesus said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Wow. That's awesome. Never even right? It's on the internet. There it is. How many of you have seen that before? Raise your hand. A few of you have? Okay. I'm going to come back to it. Another issue would be, um, and I just, again, off the top of my head, Lord, how do we apply this? I'm, I'm, I'm praying. I'm thinking. Um, I was laying down one evening this week, and I'm just laying there, and I just read. And what I try to do is I read whatever we're, we're going through each week, and I kind of just sit with it and just pray and ask the Lord to show me stuff. Um, I was thinking about the Super Bowl, 13 and 16. And I was thinking about Beyonce and her, her um, Super Bowl halftime performance. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, at one point she was inside of a pentagram. And it was like she was a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. So I began to kind of look into it a little bit back then. And I did some studying and find out that there's two to three churches that are the church of Beyonce. People go and they worship Beyonce. And I looked at this, I was thinking, man, it's some crazy, wicked stuff. And, and you could, you can, um, you know, I mean, you can look this stuff up. It's available to us. There's one point where I remember she was being interviewed and she named the name of the demon that comes up in her when she's on stage. And so this demon comes inside of her. She knows the name of that demon and she said, I sing better and I dance better when I am possessed by that demon. And so I look at that and I'm thinking, man, this is crazy. Just bold face to be able to share that, to put that out there. And I think of that little, you know, 8, 10, 12-year-old little girl that says, Mom, I want to go to the Beyonce concert. And, you know, we're taking our kids to see these things and to, to be a part of these things. And we don't even know behind the scenes sometimes the things that are taking place with some of this stuff. The last thing that I'll show you is this quick history lesson, and then I'm going to tie these three things into the end of the message. So Benjamin, show me that quick history lesson on our if you will. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it says the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, 100% Republican support, 23% Democrat uh, support, 14th Amendment, which gave citizens, uh, they they were able to free the slaves, 94% Republican support, 0% Democrat support. 15th Amendment, right to vote for all, 100% Republican support, 0% Democrat support. And then you go to Obamacare, 0% Republican support, 86% Democrat support. And so it makes it look like the Republican Party has always been uh, just on the right side of things. And so it's against Obamacare, and it's showing that the Democrats have always been uh, on the wrong side of things. You can go ahead and take it off. And so I began to look a little bit in the history. Now, when I became a Christian at 21 years old. At 18 years old, I remember watching uh, just life. I, I like political science. I took six, I think it was six political science classes. And that would be impressive if I didn't fail five of them. <laughs> See, that sounds like, Dan, you know your politics. You really like pol- political science. No, I, I just failed so many of them. I had to keep taking it. And so... I remember, I remember as a young, young man just being able to vote, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know what, I, what party I was supposed to belong to, what I was supposed to do in this, this whole political scheme of things. But as a young Puerto Rican growing up in Southern California, it looked like Republicans were old, grumpy white men, and Democrats were these cool, progressive uh, young cats that wanted to see 
change for, for good things. And that's just what I thought as an unbeliever back in, at 18 years old. At 21 years old, I would give my life to the Lord and I would change over from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party because I thought that they were more in line with Christian values and things like that. And this is no commercial for uh, politics. I'm just giving you my story. I'm just telling you where I've come from. What has largely changed since the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to the Constitution is the character of the political parties. When those amendments were passed, the Republican Party, whose first president was Abraham Lincoln, was a progressive movement, while the Democratic Party represented the entrenched conservative element of our society. Since the time of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the Democratic Party has come to represent the progressive and liberal segment And conservatives, many of them former members of the Democratic Party, have fled to the Republican Party. The roles in the past 150 years have reversed. And here's the problem I see. Whether it's with a monster drink that has this symbolism on it, whether it be with Beyonce and her wickedness and and what she does, or whether it be with politics... The enemy would love us to have these arguments about things that are insignificant in contrast to eternity. God has not called us to save America. He has called us to save Americans. And I remember early in my walk with the Lord, I got saved in 1986. I would listen to Rush Limbaugh. And I remember how angry I would be with the system and what was taking place. And I remember having arguments with people and winning those arguments and losing the war. And the enemy would love us to get entrenched in these insignificant things. Look at our presidential choice we have. Bad and worse. Jacked up and more jacked up. And we're going to post stuff on Facebook to lose the ears of people to be able to share how much Jesus loves them how much they need the Lord, how much salvation um, is the priority and and the preeminent thing. And I look at this energy drink and we could sit there and show this film to people and be all, you know, boycotting stuff and being mad at stuff. I personally didn't go to Target after they put out that they weren't going to allow, you know, the bathrooms to be men and women and they, they, all this political controversy stuff. I didn't share that with anybody. I didn't post that on any social media. That's a personal conviction. There were two times I remember I wanted to get off the freeway. I needed something. And I was like, oh, I just, oh, I didn't do it. I just, no, I didn't give in. But that, that, that's nothing in the scope of eternity. That's insignificant in the scope of eternity. That's a personal, private conviction that I have. Live by your personal, private convictions. But be careful not to lose ear with people when you talk about these political things and we get on these rantings and these ravings and all of a sudden we're winning the battle, winning the battle, winning the argument. But we've lost the opportunity to preach the gospel to people because they see angry Christians that are against whatever it is we're against. What are we for? We're for Jesus. We're for the cross because that's the message that will transform a life. The major thing is getting people saved. And it means that you have to give up one of your rights and you have to lay your knowledge down aside because you know so much. I love politics, even though I took it six times and only passed it once. I'm just saying, I love politics and the political system and everything. And I love the history of our nation. I love the flag. And if the Star Spangled Banner is ever playing, you best believe that I'll be standing up. I love my country. I love what God has blessed us with but I don't love it more than Jesus. 
I'm not an American first and then everything else under. I'm not even Puerto Rican above being a Christian. I'm a child of the Most High first and foremost. Before I'm a pastor, before I'm a husband, before I'm a father, I'm a child of the Most High. And His commission to me and to you as His child is to be His mouthpiece, to be His listening ear, to be His arms that reach out to people. And we can argue all this stuff and we can have our little, our little Christian you know, debates and we can go back and forth and that's cool in-house. But be careful when we take that out and people are watching and people are watching us who can't even agree about this stuff that, how insignificant in contrast to eternity. I'm not saying it's small or it's dumb or it's nothing. I know that this stuff has an effect in the future. I recognize that. But God has not called us to save America. America's going down. It will never recover from the 60s. Never. It was too much. Too much change at one time. And and it was like the rug of everything was pulled from under the feet of this country. Everything that we stood for, everything that we believed in. And it was just this radical dropout and just do drugs and just check out of life And unfortunately, my personal opinion, I don't think we'll ever recover from that. And we've tried, but it's not going to happen. And we want to go back, as Christians, I notice a lot of times, we want to go back to the good old days. As we looked at this political thing where it was certain part of Republican, certain part of Democrat, and we looked at liberalism and conservatism, I'm I'm an extremely conservative person politically and all otherwise, because I believe the Bible's the word of God and all of those things and all that it entails. But did you know that the conservatives of Jesus' day were the religious leaders? They were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in my heart, embarrassingly, I'm a Pharisee through and through. And so I need to be careful when I have these arguments with people, when I talk to people about these things that matter for only a short time. And I want to be right, and I want to win the argument. But greater than that, I want to become all things to all men that that I might by all means win some. I want to see people one to the Lord. And if it means that I have to lay down my political ideology and lay down my rights so that they can, like a rug, wipe their feet on me, so be it. To see them in heaven is what I desire. And so I think with that, we need to be careful. Don't major in the minors. Be careful. This world is never going to be the same. This country is never going to be the same. Homosexuality will never be in the closet. It will never be in the closet anymore. We're living in different times. Lord, how can I best love that homosexual that has come out of the closet, is queer, is as gay as it comes, and really annoys me deep inside, Lord? I need something supernatural to do that. I need you to do that through me because there's no way growing up the way I grew up, seeing what I saw, no way I'm going to be able to do that. Lord, may they be the most loved gay person on this planet by me. If you've brought them into my life, may I love them with the love that you've loved me. And and it's a different time. And how is the church going to meet the need of the present age that we live in? an absolute dependence upon God for everything that we need. And we need to lay down that pharisaical attitude, that holier-than-thou attitude, that idea that 
understanding that we think we've got it all figured out, guess what? You don't and neither do I. You and I are a work in progress. And we need to depend on the Lord and look to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we can apply first century concepts into our 21st century world. And so Lord, help us. Help us to die to our rights. To die to our arguments. To be able to look to you that we may see some people, one, in this lost world. Lord, why do sinful communities love on people better than we do? Use us, Lord, in this world to love people. That we would postpone judgment. You are the ultimate judge, Lord. And so may may we truly look to you and allow you, Lord, to not have us be sidetracked with the things that the enemy throws at us. And Lord, we bite onto them, hook, line, and sinker. And before you know it, Lord, we're winning all these battles and losing the war. Help us, Lord. We acknowledge that we need you. We're desperate for you. And may we just continue to just uh, depend on you ever so much. In Jesus' name, amen.